beginning a new series of messages uh, today, uh, which I have entitled Lessons from Israel's Monarchy. Lessons from Israel's Monarchy. In part, the motivation for this series is, grows out of my own personal study time uh, in that I've been reading through the Bible this year and it's impressed me with so many of these Old Testament portions that have uh, many valuable lessons for myself uh, as the Lord is teaching me through them. Uh, and uh, I felt that it's uh, certainly lessons that all of us uh, need to hear and receive from God's Word. Also, in light of uh, recent events with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, whose reign lasted uh, 70 years, uh, we are once again, uh, as Americans at least, introduced to the idea of a, a monarchy and a royal family and a royal rule. Uh, and so the concept of kings and queens might be uh, on our minds uh, these days uh, for various reasons. There is a key verse, though, to this uh, series, and I actually had it uh, printed and put in your bulletin for you to uh, take a look at and to memorize. It comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. So if you have that little uh, card, you could take that out. And I would encourage you during this uh, series to memorize uh, this verse because I think it's an underlying theme that comes uh, from this whole series. Uh, what we're looking at this morning, this verse wasn't stated until later, but it certainly can apply to all of these particular contexts. Now, where the Lord says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. The Lord searches throughout the earth. He's desiring to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to Him. Would that include you this morning? Is your heart fully committed to seeking after God and following Jesus Christ regularly, daily, and moment by moment? Let me uh, start by giving us a little bit of background to our passage this morning. And uh, just so you know, these, these series of messages, most of them will not uh, attempt to cover as much territory as we have here before us this morning. Uh, your scripture portion is 1 Samuel chapter 8 through chapter 15. And typically I wouldn't... Uh, pick such a large chunk of scripture to try and uh, cover together in one uh, time. Uh, but I'm just going to be making some highlights uh, as we look at that. But to get us to that point, I want to remind us uh, here this morning that uh, God delivered the Israelites from the bondage uh, of Egypt. Uh, they, were, they were slaves. And so God raised up Moses, and Moses became known as the Deliverer, 
the one who would lead the people out of uh, Egypt and into the promised land. Moses uh, wasn't uh, permitted to go into that promised land as their leader. Uh, he failed by his disobedience to the Lord. And uh, God raised up Joshua, who became the next one to lead the Israelites. And as they crossed the Jordan and went into the promised land, under Joshua's leadership, they conquered and settled many portions of that land that God had promised to give to them. However, even in that, they did not fully conquer that territory or enter into the fullness of all that God had for them. After the death of Joshua, uh, the Lord raised up various individuals known as judges who would uh, rule the people and, and provide deliverance since they were continually uh, attacked by enemies both uh, inside and outside that land. And under the leadership of these judges, God granted them victory over those enemies. But it was short-lived because the cycle of the book of Judges was that the people continually, once there was victory uh, and somewhat of a sense of peace and even some prosperity that came from the hand of God, they turned away and once again turned to false gods. And God allowed the enemy to come in and hopefully teach them this second round and third round and fourth round, all the way seven rounds where they continued in that same cycle. So we come to the book of Samuel. Uh, and Samuel was uh, chosen by God and, and ordained by God to be the last of these judges. And in, in many ways, the first of the prophets of God, where a person would receive a message from the Lord and to directly deliver it to his people as uh, the word of the Lord. And they did see victories as, as God's people under the leadership of Samuel. Uh, and certainly Samuel was one who interceded for them on, on many uh, occasions. But when you come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're told that Samuel grew old. And he had appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel and the name of the second one was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So their solution was this, the last part of verse 5. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So Israel asks for a king. They were somewhat maybe fatigued with the idea of judges, maybe not knowing who they were getting, maybe uncertain of how those judges would rule. And sadly, in this context, Samuel's own sons were not following the Lord wholeheartedly or even in any way. They, they sort of just occupied the position and and sort of did it for their own benefit and their own gain. Uh, 
Look at verses 10 and following for a moment. How would the Lord respond to his people asking for such a request as a king? Samuel told the words uh, uh, to the Lord the peop- that the people were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king will do. So he, he goes before the Lord and uh, the Lord says, give them what they want. Um, verse 5 says, you know, give us a king that we might be as the other nations. And I think that that's significant. See, up to this point, Israel had been a theocracy, meaning that God was the leader. God was the king of the nation. And his representatives were these judges, these other leaders, these other individuals that God raised up. Uh, and they, they wanted to be like the other nations uh, of the world. And in verses uh, uh, 19 and 20 uh, of this a chapter, uh, we read, after Samuel warned them of what a king would require of them, taxes, taking their, their sons and daughters to serve the, the, the royalty, so to speak, and to, to be in the military and, and to, to all, all these different things that would, in, it, in essence, become a burden to them. Verse 19, it says, the people refused to listen to Samuel. They said, no. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. You know, it's always dangerous, and we're told this twice in this context, that they wanted to be like all the other nations. Now think about that for a moment. The other nations had kings. They had monarchy and rulers, but they were godless. They were unbelieving. They were pagan. They were worshiping gods other than the one true and living God. Israel is saying to the Lord and to Samuel, his representative, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to be like those around us. And you know, it's always dangerous to reject the Lord's rule and to, de- and to desire to be like the unbelieving world. That danger can come to the church. In that the church wants to, in some ways, approach the things of God the way the world does. Thinking that it would make it more successful or more acceptable. And the same thing could be happening in an individual Christian life. I find it interesting that verses 21 and 22 tell us this in response. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Did you ever stop to think for a moment that God gives them and he gives us what we ask for and in some ways what we deserve? We sometimes struggle as believing people because of the leadership of our own nation. But maybe we have the leaders we have because that's ultimately what we really want in our leadership. And God is sovereign in the ordaining of those who are leaders in this present world. 
That may be hard to fully grasp, even as believing people who take the Word of God to be the very Word of God, but the leaders that exist are the powers that God has ordained in this present world. So you'll note with me as we continue on into chapter 9 that God's choice is made known in this man, chapter 9 and verse 1, that there was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish. And it talks about some of his lineage. Verse 2 says he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal, equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. He was head and shoulders above the rest, even in his stature. So if I was the average Israelite at 5'4", he was six feet tall. And he was impressive. <laughs> See, he's identified as someone who looks good, humanly speaking. And isn't it possible sometimes that you and I can, can look at just the outward appearance of someone or even something and sort of be impressed with it because of size, of stature, of success, and think that it's always ordained of God? And right. The thing that I want you to keep in mind here as we look at Saul here briefly this morning is that they asked for a man, they asked for a king who would be just like all the other nations around them. And God gave them that in this man, Saul. Now he was anointed in chapter 10. If you look over at chapter 10, in verse 1, Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? And so he was anointed king, which was symbolic of God himself putting his anointing on this man by the name of Saul. And kings and prophets and priests were all anointed if you read the context carefully, the Spirit of God came on Saul and he prophesied and he's, he was a changed man as a result of that. But don't, don't think that he became a saved man in that context. God did something by His Spirit and, and, and changed him. Uh, in verses 17 through 26 of 1 Samuel 10, Saul is presented publicly uh, as the king uh, and notice what we're told here beginning at uh, verse 17. So Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, No, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your clans and your tribes. And when this assembly took place, we read here that finally, verse 21, Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen and he was presented to the people as the one whom God had chosen to be the first king of Israel. And verse 24 says, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among the people? And then the people shouted, Long live the king! 
And that, I think, is a refrain that uh, is still even used today. Maybe somehow it's modified. God save the king. God save the queen. And so verse 25, Samuel gives the instructions to the people regarding kingship. You want a king, there's going to be certain responsibilities and laws that are going to govern this king. And notice this, after that, he says, uh, then he dismissed the people and they went home. So finally, after this official coronation, if you would, he says, dismissed, and everybody goes back to their homes. So Saul is now presented as the king of Israel. There's again another uh, time after some initial victories in chapter 11 where he is once again uh, affirmed as God's choice in this context uh, and is uh, confirmed uh, as the king. And notice this at verse uh, 12 of chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 12. He mentions the fact that he is the chosen one, verse 13, and the king that was set over you. And now, notice verse 14 says to the people and to Saul, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, good. See, you're still required, even though you have a king, you still have to be obedient now to that king, and you have to be obedient to the Lord. And that's a good thing. But notice verse 15. But if you disobey the Lord, and if you rebel against his command, his hands will be against you as it was against your fathers. And then, and then Samuel goes on and continues to give them instruction, telling them not to turn away from the Lord. And he reminds them at verse 23 that as God's spokesman, as God's prophet, he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you and to teach you the way that is good and right. Samuel will continue in his ministry of being the, the mouthpiece of God and giving instruction to the people. But he reminds them in this choice that they have made that they must fear the Lord, verse 24, and faithfully serve Him with all your heart, considering what great things He has done for you. Verse 25, Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Because the judgment of God will fall. Let me just say this. Um, no matter what system of leadership that God appoints, He expects uh, His people to obey the rule of law and also to be obedient to the Word of God. And sometimes those two come in conflict, but God's Word must always be obeyed from our hearts. But what about Saul? I, I've given you a lot of background here and, and, and let me just suggest to you that even though every detail of Saul's life is not given to us in Scripture, there are significant, two at least, defining moments in Saul's life which would ultimately indicate that this man 
had no heart for God. He did lead Israel. He did have victories, but he failed in his relationship to God. Look at verse uh, 5 of chapter 13 with me. Chapter 13 and verse 5. Here is one of those times that the enemies of Israel had come around them, known as the Philistines. We're familiar with them, aren't we? The Philistines, verse 5 says, assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they, came, and they went up and camped at Mishmash, east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that the army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. And some of the Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And so they saw the, the impressive nature of the Philistine army and it caused them to, to quake with fear and even to flee and to hide before even the battle began. And verse uh, 7 continues, Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Now I'm not faulting them for, for being afraid, but here Saul as their leader and as their king, they were looking to him, what would he do? The text tells us, verse 8, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. At some point, Samuel said to him, you wait seven days before you do anything. And probably the, the day dawned, if you would, and it was the seventh day, and light, it, everything was now getting light, and the situation hadn't gotten any better. It's getting a lot worse. And so Saul uh, acts. It's like, I've waited the seven days. I've got to do something. Because now people are starting to, out of their fear, scatter from me. So verse 9 says, he said, bring the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Now stop there for a moment. Whose responsibility is it to offer a sacrifice? Priests. Here is one who is a king who has that role given to him by God, but is now stepping into a role that is not his, a spiritual role. Thinking that because he's king, he can do that. And notice this. this is, uh, the, the way it's worded in, in this translation, the NIV, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. Probably thought he was going to get a, a, a greeting that would be affirming him as king. The first words out of Samuel's mouth, at least that are recorded, verse 11. What have you done? Samuel asked. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now, just stop for a moment and, and look at, 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 at Saul's reply here uh, to uh, Samuel. One of the things that, that stands out to me that is that, number one, Saul is impatient. 
Any of you impatient here this morning? A second thing that I see in him is self-reliance. Ever been guilty of that as an individual? That I'll do it myself? I can remember saying that to, I don't know who it was. My mother wanted to help me with something. And I can never forget the look on her face when I said, I'll do it myself! She gave me a look that only a mother can give. I knew I said the wrong thing. But at the heart of it is, is a disobedience. Samuel said, you wait until I arrive. Samuel would have offered that sacrifice. Samuel says, what are you doing? And notice this. If you look at these verses carefully, verse 11, verse 12, and then the end of verse 12, Samuel says, I saw, I thought, I felt compelled. Where is his confidence? In himself. And only what he can see in the natural. He's not truly seeking after the heart of God. He's acting out of self-interest. And notice, you might think that, well, that was, you know, he made a mistake. But not according to Samuel and his words to him. Verse 13, you acted foolishly, said Samuel. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God gave and if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Did you notice here that over and over again, Samuel emphasizes the fact that you have not obeyed the Lord. Sam, Saul, in acting this way, showed that he is like the kings, the rulers of this world who are without God. In the natural, you and I might say, isn't this kind of harsh? For God to say you lost your kingship, you lost your posterity, you've lost your, your dynasty for one mistake, for one sin. It's a reminder of two things here I see. Number one, as with Saul and all those who are recorded in Scripture, save the Lord Jesus Christ, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But secondly... One sin is enough for God to reject a person and bring them under judgment. What was the Lord's command to Adam and to Eve? Just one command. Don't eat from the tree. What did our first parents do? They ate from the tree. They disobeyed. See, I think sometimes we don't fully grasp or understand the serious nature of sin of being disobedient to God. Saul certainly didn't. And notice how, how he, he responded to that. You, you don't see in the context all of a sudden Saul falling on his knees with humility, with repentance, with brokenness, with a crying out after the Lord for mercy and for grace. You see none of that. He just goes on with being king. 
So, uh, you have here, fast forward, another defining moment. You might say, well, that was, that was, that was pretty intense for the Lord to, to act that way in, in taking away from him the kingdom. Maybe Saul reformed himself. Maybe, maybe Saul set himself to seek the heart of God after this, and God was shutting him out from his grace and his mercy. No, 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 no. Here's another defining moment. Turn ahead to chapter 15 for a moment. Chapter 15. And I want, I want to read the first three verses because this sets the context once again and shows us the response that Saul had to the Lord ultimately. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they lay weighed them as they came up from Egypt. So Saul now and Israel was, were going to be agents of God's judgment. And here's how it was to happen. Verse 3. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death. Men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Now, you hear that. Is there anything ambiguous in those commands? Is it unclear? Is it vague? Is, is there some part of that that was sort of left it with a question mark in your mind? Now you might say, why would a holy God do that? And why would a loving God do that? That's a question for another consideration. Here was the command of God in this context. Well, what actually happened? Look at verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. Verse 10, or verse 8, excuse me. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. Verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat and the calves and the lambs and everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. His actions were incomplete. His obedience was incomplete. And in fact, it was complete disobedience to the Lord. Look at verse 10 with me for a moment. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Now notice this, the next morning after Samuel spends the night in prayer for Saul in this whole situation, early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. After this victory, what does he do? One of the first things he does is he puts up a monument to himself. Now notice this, verse 13, once again, Samuel reached him. And so again, Saul probably thought a, a royal greeting will be mine from the prophet of God. 
And Samuel says, uh, Saul says, excuse me, verse 13, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Verse 14, but Samuel says, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of the cattle that I hear? So Saul answers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared them, the best of the sheep and the cattle, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. So he's giving an explanation. Uh, we, we kept back the best to offer to God. But did God ask for that? Did God command that? And notice this, maybe he was on a rant or on a rave because maybe he kind of in the back of his mind realized that, well, you know, I didn't really do everything. So finally Samuel says, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And so Saul says, well, tell me. Look at verse 17. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, make war with them, on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Notice his response in verse 20. But I did obey the Lord. Isn't that true of human nature that we can think that somehow we have fully carried out what God has asked of us and we don't realize our own failure and our own sin? This is what Samuel's, uh, Saul is doing. He's not acknowledging the fact that I blew it. I sinned. And you notice that there's no confession or acknowledgement of that. In fact, again, S Samuel presses this. And, and Saul says, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission assigned to me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best that was to be devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. And notice these, these very haunting words, but very true. Samuel replies, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. You know what God wants from me and what God wants from you is a heart that's fully given to Him that desires to be obedient to Him. Not just rejoicing in the fact that we have a Savior and a sacrifice and a forgiveness, all of which is the, the mercy and the grace of God to us, but He wants us to be at a place where, where, where we are longing to do what He commands of us and to carry it out to the full. And notice this, verse 23, he continues that, that his action was not just a, a misstep in the wrong direction. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul says to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. And notice what, how he kind of caveats this. Yeah, yeah, I sinned, but uh, 
yeah, I did eat from the tree, Lord, but you know that woman that you gave me as a wife? You know, she kind of, you know. There's not a true heart's repentance and brokenness before God. He tries to somewhat shift the blame to some degree. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Who do you fear more? God or people? Now notice this, even after that, even after that somewhat acknowledgement of his failure and his sin, his, his attention is now, Samuel, honor me. Let, let's continue on with the kingly type of uh, regalia and acknowledgement. Look at this. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. It's, it's as though Samuel or Saul, you're not even realizing the serious nature of what you've done in disobedient to God. You want to just kind of go back to, I just want to go back to church and start singing his praises again. And you haven't repented of sin. And notice this, Samuel says to him, verse 26, you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Verse 27, so Samuel turned to leave and Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and it has given it to one of your neighbors, one better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind for he will not, is not a man that he should change his mind. And notice this, even after this, this further word of the loss of the kingdom and a dynasty and a place before God that endures, he says, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people Israel. Where's his focus again? On himself. And notice this. He continues on. And come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. If you read these, these passages carefully, you will never hear Saul say, my God or our God. He'll say, your God. And that's why I suggest to you that Saul was a man who never had even a heart for God at all. If you go forward from this, we're told that Samuel puts to death Agag. And verse 34 tells us that he left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home at Gibeah of Saul. Until the day that Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. He lost the voice of God in his life that was given to him through Samuel. If you take the time to look at the remainder of his life, Saul further had declined from this point forward. He became suspicious of David. He attempted to murder him on several occasions. He became unstable. In chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, he killed the priests of the Lord. And in his most declining moments, he turned from the Lord and sought out the help of a medium, a witch at Endor, to try and give him spiritual counsel. He was wounded in Mount Gilboa in chapter 31 and verse 4, he ended his own life through suicide. Saul was a man of jealousy. 
He was given to fits of rage. He had mental instability and was self-confidence in all that, that he did. And you know the interesting thing about the name Saul? Do you know what his name Saul means? It means asked for or requested or desired. The people of Israel said, we want to have a king just like all the nations around us. And God says, you want a king just like the rest of the world has. Here you have it in the man Saul. And I think in that he was saying that here's a man who doesn't have really a heart for God. And that's what the rest of the kings of the world, apart from the true and living God, are like. This is how they will live. This is where they will lead you to death and to destruction. By way of contrast, we see the man after God's own heart next time whom God raised up to take his place. So what, what is the application for you and for me uh, this morning? Well, first off, I, I think that we need to examine our own hearts towards God. His word, his commands, his expectations that he has for us. Are you and I fully seeking to live out His Word and His commands that He's given us, or do we ignore His teaching? Is it possible that in our lives as believing people that there is a place of incomplete obedience to God? Or maybe it's out-and-out rebellion? Is it possible that we as believing people can rationalize and be convinced that I am obeying God and living for Him, yet in reality that is not true of our walk with God. And maybe also a second thing is this. Not only am I to examine my own heart to see if I am maybe living like Saul, but we know people around us who are on the same path that Saul followed. They are following his pattern. And you and I as believing people who have the truth of the gospel can provide them the good news of Jesus, the transforming, life-giving message that Jesus saves, that God loves us, that he wants to rescue us from certain doom and death and destruction. Saul was one who never showed true repentance or a real heart's desire to be right with God. May that not be said of us. In fact, one of the last things that was said uh, of Saul that Scripture records. And even Todd Adams, our missionary guest here, mentioned this a couple uh, weeks back. Verse 35 ends, And the Lord was grieved that he made Saul king over Israel. May it be so that my life and your life and all who are in the hearing of this word would never have those words spoken about us that the Lord was grieved that He chose us and is working in our lives. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have considered a lot today but I trust that each of us have seen the example that is put before us in the man by the name of Saul. Lord, I know that there 
the greater context of your word would indicate that certainly you are a God of grace and mercy and you show kindness and you allow us for a place of repentance and no doubt Saul had those opportunities but your word doesn't record that he ever responded to you positively to repent to turn from sin to fall on your mercy and grace and and plead your forgiveness Lord may that not be true of us in any way Lord we do fall short we do fail there is incompleteness within us but oh God may we respond as one who's after your own heart that pleads the blood of Jesus that that once again returns to the cross and wants to be right with you and and allows your spirit to transform us to move us to a place of obedience a place of of following you with all our hearts so to that end father we give ourselves to you may we be people whose hearts are fully given to Jesus Christ and living for him For it's in his most holy name that we pray. Amen.